Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. 8.36 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, December 12, 1972. Apollo 17 astronauts Gene Sermon and uh, Jack Schmidt break to a stop alongside Nansen Crater, keenly aware that they were far, far from home. And they'd flown nearly a quarter million miles to the man on the moon's left eye, landed on its edge, and then driven five miles into this desolate, boulder-strewn landscape. And as they gathered samples, they strode at the outermost edge of mankind's travels. This place, this moment, marked the extreme exploration for a species born to wander. In his new book, Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings, writer Earl Swift presents a discovery, a rediscovery of the uh, final Apollo moon landings and reveals why these extraordinary yet overshadowed missions distinguish the use uh, by the use of the revolutionary lunar rover uh, roving vehicle deserve to be celebrated as the pinnacle of human adventure and exploration. Earl Swift is the author of New York Times bestseller Chesapeake Requiem. His other books include Autobiography, The Big Roads and Where They Lay. He's a former reporter for the Virginian Pilot and a contributor to Outside and other publications. And he's a fellow of Virginia Humanities at University of Virginia. Lives uh, west of Charlottesville in the Blue Ridge Mountains there. Earl Swift, welcome uh, back to Access Utah. Tom, thank you so much for having me again. We talked with you about Chesapeake Requiem. Um, and to remind those who aren't familiar with it, go out and get that book as well. That's about a disappearing island, uh, Chesapeake Bay. So yeah, yeah. Uh, talking about, uh, you know, going to the, well, let me ask you, this transition um, last book was about this island uh, there. What uh, caught your interest about these last three Apollo moon landings? I turned 13 the day that Apollo 15 touched down on the moon and had very little memory of any of the missions that came before it. You know, we went to the moon six times. At least we, we landed people on the moon six times. And those first three missions, I just... Uh, I wasn't aware of the world around me enough to really pay attention. And uh, with 15, though, I was a teenager. We lived in Houston. We had moved to Houston recently, and I paid attention. And one of the things that stood out to me, one of the reasons I did pay attention that captured my, my imagination about 15 and 16 and 17 was that the astronauts had that most American invention with them. They had they, they took a car to the moon, and uh, at the time I thought that was you know, just cool, you know, the words I used at the time, without really appreciating just how transformative an addition to the uh, Apollo payload that little gizmo really was. Uh, so to make a long story short, Tom, when my editor at HarperCollins approached me in, in 2019 and said, you know, we've got the anniversary of the, of the rover missions coming up. Maybe I think it might be an interesting story to, to explore, you know, the lunar rover at he didn't even have to get the complete sentence out. I was on board. Uh, let's put this in context. Uh, of course, Apollo 11 was the mission that actually fulfilled President Kennedy's, you know, pronouncement. Uh, within the mm-hmm. within the decade, he says, <laughs> so he said, We're, "We'll um, we'll land a man on the moon." Apollo 11 did that. Um, and yeah. So I understand that, you know, maybe I don't know immediately or. After that, uh, I guess Congress or you know, NASA or said, okay, we've accomplished our goal. Maybe we ought to shuffle some money elsewhere. That's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, Apollo 11, Apollo 11, all the other missions have, have dimmed in the shadow cast by Apollo 11. It was, uh, it was a universally witnessed event. I mean, the entire world basically watched 
on live TV as that unfolded, and there have been very few occasions on which that has happened. Nine eleven would be another, but for all the wrong reasons. And uh, the public's interest in the space program waned very quickly after eleven. Um, Apollo twelve went up in November of nineteen sixty nine and didn't get half of the attention that that Apollo eleven had. And of course, then thirteen came along and ran into trouble and did get attention. But then with fourteen. Again, the, the public, it, moon landings had become commonplace. And one of the reasons was that the astronauts, their activities on the moon in those early missions made for pretty bad TV. I mean, the, the TV camera was stationary. It was on a tripod near the lunar, lunar module, and the astronauts didn't move it much. Uh, they bounced around the immediate vicinity of, of the lunar module, doing nothing that seemed particularly staring on television. And um, it wasn't until 15, with the advent of the rover, that uh, that, that changed. And, and to put it in perspective, Tom, that when 11 landed, you know, the astronauts you know, stepped out of the uh, their lander and walked around, again, the immediate vicinity of base camp. Their travels would fit inside, all of the travels they did while they were there would fit inside a football field. And there would be a lot of yardage left over. Go ahead two years to July of 1971, when Apollo 15 landed. Guys drove 17 miles. And uh, we're talking uh, just a completely different experience, a completely different and much more ambitious menu of, of science that they were expected to accomplish and did accomplish because they had this incredibly lightweight folding go-kart. You know, it really answered a lot of the the challenges that the early, uh, you know, it addressed the, the challenges the early Apollo moonwalkers encountered, uh, much of which were related to their spacesuits. So uh, tell me about the, uh, well, the the genesis of this. At a certain point, uh, NASA, I guess, says we, we want a rover. We want to we want to explore more widely. What was the proposal that went out? And, and it went out to private companies, right? Yeah, I think it's a misconception that NASA built the rockets that took us to the moon. And, you know, NASA built the hardware in those rockets. And uh, NASA actually built very little. NASA contracted with with private companies to build all of that stuff. And the idea of, of a rover, the need for uh, some form of mobility to move the astronauts around with speed and ease, that was recognized from the earliest days of serious consideration about moon travel. I mean, it was recognized before there was a NASA. If you go back to the living of it in 1952, uh, you find Werner von Braun, uh, later the guy who you know, built the Saturn V with, uh, with the help of the Marshall Space Flight Center and a lot of private contractors. Werner von Braun participated in a, in a magazine series in Collier's Magazine, which was a, a major and very well-respected news magazine of the day. And the series examined the inevitability of America going to space in the next 25 years. Von Braun's contributions were a couple of stories that broke down and detailed exactly how he foresaw um, the first moon visit going, the first exploration on, you know, by people. And a moon car figured prominently in the action. Now, what he envisioned was a giant, hulking, caterpillar-tracked, tank pretty much with a with a pressurized cabin just a, a behemoth of a vehicle in which a bunch of astronauts would would climb and they'd uh, 
they'd go hundreds of miles uh, in shirt sleeve comfort because this thing was pressurized. They'd be able to take off their spacesuits, and they'd, they'd live in the thing as well as traveling it. And that, for years, was kind of the that was the concept that NASA clung to. Marshall Space Flight Center, which Von Braun later became the director of, was the lead center on investigating moon mobility throughout the early and mid-60s. And, you know, the first concepts for rovers that the center really uh, examined in, in any kind of detail were, just as he had envisioned in Collier's, big, hulking, pressurized rovers that were so big and heavy that they would have required their own Saturn V to get to the moon, which was, you know, inevitably that's what did that concept in. NASA eventually, they didn't kill it altogether, but they backburnered the idea of, of such a, a, a mobile laboratory or MOLAB as they called it. Because you got to remember in the, in the early to mid-60s, the expectation was that Apollo was going to be the first chapter in a lengthy lunar campaign. That after the, you know, after Apollo 20, the original last Apollo mission flew, we'd keep going. There would be another program that followed it, and it would be even more ambitious uh, in you know, with lengthier stays. And eventually we'd have a of some sort on the moon. So the MOLAB, that big rover, was just shoved back to one of those later programs. It wasn't done away with altogether. And in the meantime, NASA investigated some open lunar jeep kind of concepts that were quite a bit smaller. Even so, they weren't all that small. They still would have required another rocket to get them to the moon. And then in 1967, with the budget slashed, uh, NASA realized it wasn't going to be running any missions uh, during Apollo that featured two rockets. And so it kind of walked away from the whole notion of a rover. And at that point, engineers for private companies who had been working for years on these NASA studies under contract, and they had hit way too much in personal investment in the idea of moon mobility to simply bag the idea. So they they kind of took it up themselves. And uh, one engineer in particular in Santa Barbara, California, working for General Motors, a guy named Ference Pavlix started investigating whether it was possible to shrink the notion of a rover even smaller than this open lunar jeep that they had been investigating and whittle the essence of a car down to its indivisible minimum and then figure out a way to fold it up so that it would fit on the existing lunar module. Uh, it took him four months, but he came up with a, an extremely lightweight aluminum folding go-kart electrically powered, a 4 by 4 that could be origamied into a tiny bundle that would fit into a storage bay on the already not very large lunar module. And uh, he and uh, his boss took a, a one-sixth scale model that he had made of this thing to the Marshall Space Flight Center, showed it to Von Braun, which has it Von Braun slammed his hand on, a, on the desktop and said, you know, we must do this. And, and the rest is history. Understand one of these small scales. They put a GI Joe in there, did they? Is it? <laughs> that was the model that he took when, when he showed it to Von Braun. His son's GI Joe, wearing a Mercury spacesuit, was sitting in the driver's seat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what were the? It had to be very lightweight because you only had one rocket, and you you know you only had a certain amount of fuel, uh, I suppose. What were some of the other challenges that they faced? Well, wait. Weight was the big one, and it was directly related to fuel because the, the uh, conventional wisdom at NASA in Houston at the man's, what was then called the Manned Spacecraft Center, it's now the Johnson Space Center, 
was that for every 10 pounds you added to the lunar module, you gave up a second of hover in fuel. And Apollo 11 had demonstrated as, you know, as it came in for a landing, Neil Armstrong took control of the lunar module because he didn't like the terrain that the automatic pilot you know, was aiming them towards to land. He took control and he hovered quite a bit, finding a good landing spot. By the time he put it down, they only had a few seconds of, of fuel to spare. That was very much in NASA's, NASA's mind as it contemplated whether or not to, to go with the rover. It had to be, had to be extremely light because, uh, you know, it was cutting into the, the margin of safety. Initially, NASA decreed that it could be no more than 400 pounds. The rovers were actually about 460, 460 to 470, uh, the three of them. But, um, but they came in almost as light as a single astronaut wearing a spacesuit. You know, by the time the late Apollo missions came along, who might weigh 160, 165 pounds, they weren't big guys, weighed 400 pounds when he was wearing that spacesuit, most of it in the backpack that he wore that contained all the air and cooling water he'd need while he was out and about. So uh, I want to loop back uh, a little later and talk about the these engineers who scientists who built this thing with what 1969 you know, technology, right? These were <laughs> uh, these were GM parts, right? Anyway, let, let's loop back well, to that. Well, <laughs> well, it wasn't like they they took parts from Vega. <laughs> okay, put it, uh, thank God, and put it in the rubber. But th- this was not Detroit General Motors. This was not the same. It was the same company that built cars, uh, but it was a completely, you know, it was a division, actually, of Delco Electronics by this time, and it was a defense research lab that had been operating in uh, in Santa Barbara since 1960. Yeah. It was a very specialized kind of think tank place. Would have been even more spectacular if there was parts off of Vega, but I understand why, why it wasn't. <laughs> um, well, we wanted to get the astronauts back. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, so I want to loop back to the, these uh, these extraordinary engineers, but tell me the story of, of Apollo 15. Were there, I guess, always probably have concerns, boy, I hope this works, maybe some, you know, quite a bit of confidence it would, but uh, what happened? Well, I think there was confidence it would. It had been, you know, it had been tested on quite a bit, but the thing is, you know, this is that rare piece of NASA technology that couldn't be tested in the environment in which it was intended to, to be used. You know, they send rockets up unmanned all the time to test them. There's no way to test a rover that can only be used in the moon, and, and it's important to note that this could only be used the actual rovers that were taken in the moon could only be used there because it was so light. It was whittled down to such uh, a gossamer kind of construct that if you tried to, to use it in Earth's gravity, if you if you st- you know tried to take a seat in the thing in Earth's gravity, you'd break the whole machine in half. Uh, the uh, it was intended just for one sixth gravity. You know, I mean, it weighed seventy eight pounds on the moon. I mean, there was very little to it. It was it was wispy. The uh, the floorboards on the on the rover were one fiftieth of an inch thick. They were a piece of ribbed aluminum, no thicker than um, the thinnest of wood veneers on a cheap piece of furniture. Uh, you know, so that it was a leap of faith to some extent to climb into this thing, essentially a 1969 General Motors product, and leave base camp in it and drive it for miles. I mean, that at one point, well, the what you introduced the uh, the segment with on Apollo 17, uh, the astronauts drove it 4.72 miles 
from the lunar module, and that that 4.72 miles included a couple of, you know, a long drive across an undulating plain. They climbed up a a fairly steeply sloping avalanche fan. They went up and over a 250-foot-tall ridge-like fault, and then they rolled down the other side. So they were not only almost five miles from from their lander, from their one-way home, but they were a heck of a hike and a significant climb away from, from that. That was a 61-minute drive to get there, so it would have been it would have been a, um, a back-breaking, you know, hike back to the uh, back to base. That brings the, up uh, a, a 15, oh, go ahead. I'm, well, the 15, the Apollo 15 guys uh, landed in the middle of a uh, a moonscape without earthly equivalent. They were in a uh, they were in, in the center of a plain, ominously called the March of Decay. It was ringed by mountains, as you know, the, the height of Kilimanjaro, and uh, on one side that was a, uh, a canyon uh, a mile wide and a thousand feet deep. And they were able, unlike the astronauts who came before them, thanks to the rover, to sample all of those different landforms. They were able to to travel to any other mission would have been impossible. They got a huge variety of. of of sampling done, and the same was true on Apollo 16 and Apollo 17. They had a, a limit, right, that they set six miles, no more than six miles out. Why did they do that? You know, it was never formally stated as, as six miles, but that was that was about as far as they would have been able to drive safely. And that the, the thinking was that if the rover conked out, they had to have enough air and cooling water in their backpacks to hike back. And so the calculation on how far to let them go was really a, a question of how much air do you have. And so with each sortie, and, and each of these missions made three drives on three different days, on each of them, they'd start out by going to the farthest flung place that they planned to go that day. They'd drive directly to the most distant spot on, in the day's explorations. The thing, well, at the beginning of the mission, you know, at the beginning of the day's activity, Activities, they have a full load of air and cooling water, and that's going to be depleted as the day goes on. So as the day progressed, they'd move closer and closer to the lunar module so that if they did have to hike, they'd have the life support to do it. And, you know, it's important to remember that it was very difficult to move around in a spacesuit. That's one of the reasons that the, the rover became essential. Uh, you're wearing a, a garment that is heavier than you are. That backpack was extremely heavy, and it changes your whole center of gravity. Think of it as wearing 20 raincoats, one on top of another. And then that confining heavy garment is pumped full of air to the stiffness of an all-season radial. And it's it's so stiff, it stands away from your body to the point that, you know, bending an arm, closing your fist, is it requires muscle. And it's exhausting to do it over and over again. So what appears to be a lot of fun, you know, the astronauts bunny hopping around and uh, on TV, was actually a lot of work. And uh, with that work came a rise in their metabolic rates. And with that rise came increased consumption of their air and cooling water, which means they couldn't spend as much time outside. So the rover, when it came along, it built in, of course, it, it eliminated a lot of walking, so they were a lot, you know, they were able to save a lot of energy that way. It also built cool down periods into each into each day's time outside. So you know, they drive 
drive a couple of miles, get to a, a place where they were going to do some scientific work, do the work, get back into the rover, lower their metabolic rates as they drove to the next scientific stop, and so on. So they wound up being much more time outside. And uh, so it increased not only range, but, but time available to do the work. Let's take a brief break. Um, we'll come back. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with Earl Swift. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Chesapeake Requiem, among other books. The new book is Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings. We're talking about Apollo 15, 16, and 17. And we'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Utah Tourism Association, advocating Utah's visitor economy, hosting the annual live Utah Tourism Conference, August 10th through the 13th in Ogden, featuring breakout sessions, destination discovery events, and more. Registration information available at utahtourismconference.com. Mars has fascinated humans since ancient times. Mostly because of the fact that Mars stands out because of its color. The reddish hue, but also the possibility of life there. We really want to go to Mars because it's so much like Earth. I'm Mike and Scott. Join me for Destination Mars. What are we learning about this planet? And what will it take to get there? Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This week in This American Life, who do you guys think is going to have the highest score? I'm going to go with Jane. Jane. Our staff heard that there's a test that could literally measure whether or not you're a psychopath. So we took it, and we tried to predict who would score the highest. I'm going to go Robin. I'm saying Robin, too. Well, now I'm going to change mine to Robin, actually. I know, I know. I secretly, I think I'm the dark horse. I do. I kind of think it's me. This week. Tune in Saturday morning at 10 here on UPR. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with the writer Earl Swift. The new book is Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover, and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings. We're talking about Apollo 15, 16, and 17. The time frame, Earl uh, Swift, is, um, what, early 70s? Well, yeah, 15 was July and August of 1971, and then 16 came in April of 1972. And then finally, uh, Apollo 17 came in December of 1972. I want to have you talk about what these astronauts would have been experiencing on the on the moon. So it, it's extreme temperatures, right? Radiation. That's why they have their suits on, obviously, of uh, no air. Talk a little bit about that, and then I, I want to have you talk about what they were seeing. The the perspectives all different, right? And the, the, so I guess those two things. Sure. Well, the, yeah, I mean, we're talking, one of the challenges of building this, this rover was it had to be extremely, extremely light. But it had to be hardy, and it had to be hardy in the most hostile environment, really, that you can imagine almost. It, the moon's surface is uh, subject to wild extremes in temperature. In the shade, it can get as cold as minus 250 degrees Fahrenheit. In the sun, it can get as high as... 250, no, plus 250 degrees. Um, it is subjected to a constant bombardment of cosmic radiation and micrometeorites. And these micrometeorites are the size of a grain of sand or smaller, but they're moving with the speed of bullets. So, you know, they're going to leave a mark. 
And then on top of everything else, you've, uh, you've got an absence of air. There's no air, which uh, I considered important enough to put that in the book's title. That uh, It's a huge deal. You know, to work in a hard vacuum, any tear in their suit would kill them in seconds. It was, uh, it was a scary environment in which to work. And then, you know, uh, layered on top of all of that, they're working in one-sixth gravity. So movement doesn't feel like it ought to. Uh, you know, everything's, they've trained, you know, they've trained the simulators uh, to deal with one-sixth gravity. But, you know, being in an airplane that's doing parabolic dives and, and, and climbs is only so good a, a simulation. That, you know, when you're out outside on the moon for hours, uh, you know, that's a, that adds a level of weirdness uh, to the to the whole enterprise, getting around trying to figure out where you were in relation to the to the moonscape to the terrain was was a challenge because the moon lacks any of the visual cues that we don't even realize we're using to measure distance. So you know, without clouds, without trees, without houses, without anything that we use as a a, a touchstone as a yardstick it's very easy to become disoriented because a boulder or a crater a long way away, if it's big, looks just the same as a much smaller boulder close up. And so it's, even if you have great maps, if you're on foot, it's really hard to tell where you are. It's hard to judge, okay, is that crater this one on my map or is it this one, you know, over here on my map? It's, and that was demonstrated on Apollo 14, the last mission on which the astronauts were on foot when Alan Shepard and Ed Mitchell left the lunar module on their second hike. And uh, their destination that day was supposed to be a massive crater, 1,000 feet across, uh, a half mile away. And they started out from the from base camp knowing exactly where it was from where they were standing at the time. Now, right over there, Ed Mitchell said. But as they walked, they lost track of where they were. They lost track of the craters around them. Uh, they misjudged distance. To the point where when they took their first break, they were hundreds of yards short of where they thought they were on their hike. And uh, they wandered around like the Lost Franklin expedition. They were never lost uh, because they could see their lunar module behind them the whole time, but they couldn't find the crater. And it, it was a, you know, as big as all get out. Anyway, they finally, uh, after a protracted uh, odyssey on the, the furrowed surface of the Fra Mauro region of the moon, Houston told them, look, you know, you're running out of time. You're going to have to sample rocks where you are, and we're going to consider that the crater for argument's purpose. So they sampled rocks there and then walked back to the lunar module, not realizing that they had come within 65 feet of the crater. They were standing right next to it. They couldn't see it. Hmm. So those were some of the challenges that travel on the moon presented. And the, the rover was that it had a navigation system. And it had a navigation system that, the astronauts' scientific backroom, their scientific expert uh, advisors, and all of mission control could use as well. They could they could follow along with the astronauts with great accuracy. So they this navigation system uh, was really simple, really sturdy. It consisted of a directional gyro that merely kept track of what direction the nose was pointed in, and that was mated to it's odometers. And so it, it, all it did was measure how far it went in any one direction, you know, and then if they turned, it measured how far it went in the new direction. And by 
linking that all to a known starting point outside the lunar module, they could figure out where they were without need of a compass, which you couldn't use on the moon because there's no magnetic field. And because they had this system, Houston could could at times uh, give them give them directions if they were uncertain about which way to go, if, you know, trying to find a particular feature on the moon. Houston could actually say, from where you are right now, you want to take this bearing and you want to go 1.4 clicks or whatever, and, and it would take them right there. So it was a, a, just a huge improvement in getting around and, and, and ultimately in safety and knowing where they were. And I remind us, this is 1969 technology. I think sometimes we look down our noses from our perch right here, but they they were able to get it done right on on the moon. Uh, one of the one of the advantages yeah. I, I read um, of having a lightweight you know module, the vehicle. At one point, apparently they they were at a point where they had to turn around, couldn't turn around, so they just picked it up and turned it around. Yeah, yeah, you could you could do that pretty easily when. It, it, the whole rover weighed 78 pounds, so uh, there was a, a point on Apollo 16 when they were, or I guess it was 15, rather, they were on such a steep slope at, that when they got off the, the rover, they weren't too confident in the parking job they'd done, so they just picked it up and moved it. And, uh, and often when they first unloaded the rover from the, the lunar module, it came down, a, there was kind of a semi-automatic uh, deployment system that lowered it like a drawbridge out of this this cargo bay that it was it was stuffed into, and then it unfolded as it lowered. And um, when it was on the ground and they had disconnected it, it was facing the lunar module. So before they drove anywhere, they usually pick it up and turn it around so that it was facing out. I want to I want to go back to the, these engineers. A couple, at least a couple that you highlight, fascinating gentlemen, both immigrants. Tell me about uh, these two gentlemen. Well, uh, the first is is M.G. Greg Becker, uh, who was a Pole, World War II refugee, uh, came to the United States to work for the Detroit Arsenal, one of the Army's transportation kind of think tanks. And he is remembered as the founder of an entire branch, really, called Terra Mechanics, which is the study of vehicles and their interaction with the, the ground on which they travel. So if you've ever gone mudding in a Jeep or you've raced motocross, you know, or you've mountain biked, you owe something of the experience to Greg Becker. And he, uh, he hired a, uh, a young Hungarian refugee in 1957, a guy named Ferenc Pavlix. And uh, a couple years later, they were offered a job with General Motors and they took it and uh, moved to Santa Barbara, where by the time they went there, you know, Sputnik had, had flown uh, our, you know, Explorer 1 had flown our first satellite. And about the time the Mercury 7 were recruited by NASA to be the first astronauts in the late 50s, Becker and Pavlix uh, got space fever and began experimenting with uh, what they thought might be for lunar soils. They took a volcanic rock and ground it up and pretty finely. And, uh, and they tested various vehicle concepts on, on this analog lunar surface and uh and came up with some really pretty amazing designs for all-terrain vehicles that informed some of the work they did for terrestrial vehicles because they're uh, in santa barbara their their first customer was the u.s military coming up with stuff they could use actually you know on earth um so anyway they uh they came up with a, a bunch of really interesting concepts 
Uh, most of them uh, did not make it onto the finished lunar rover. But interestingly, some of them have made it onto the Mars rovers. So they kind of kind of skipped a generation with their early thinking. And, and uh, you know, their early stuff was six-wheeled, had a flexible frame so that all six wheels stayed on the ground all the time. The uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory did not use a flexible frame for the Mars rovers, but it got the same results by using what's called a rocker bogey suspension, which emulate, it emulates the, uh, the results that Becker and Pavlix got back in the, in the very early 60s. I was going to ask you about the Mars rovers. This is the obvious, you know, next steps, many many steps beyond. But um, what what did uh, what, what did Publix and, and Becker think about that? Did, did they live? I, I think Publix is still alive. Is he? Publix is alive and uh, and well, living in, in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if he's commented on the Mars rovers. I guess I imagine they would have, Mars uh, rovers engineers would have learned some things from from these rovers. Oh, and I did, especially when they studied, the again, the early work that GM did. Uh, not so much the lunar rover, but the uh, the concepts. You know, before we sent men to the moon, NASA had a, a number of programs that were designed to get a better fix on what the lunar surface was like. Because, you know, when the Apollo program began, we had never gotten a close look. All we knew about the lunar surface was what we could see through telescopes, which was not a whole lot. And so they, you know, NASA came up with a number of, of programs, most memorably perhaps was the Surveyor Program, where um, you'd send up an unmanned probe that would soft land on the lunar surface, much as the lunar module later did. And it would be loaded with an array of, of instruments that would measure all sorts of aspects of the, you know, the lunar environment. And it would also have a TV camera aboard, and it would take pictures uh, while it was there that and take pictures of its own feet to measure how far its feet sank into the lunar surface on landing, that sort of thing. So GM's initial flurry of work on a rover was for a miniature remote-controlled rover that would have fit aboard the surveyor lander. And it was so, it's those little miniature six-wheeled rovers that did more to inform the Mars rovers that came along a full generation than the lunar rover, which you know, carried people. Let's take another uh, brief break. We'll be back with uh, Earl Swift. He's author, uh, most recently, of Across the Airless Wilds. It's about the last three Apollo landings on the moon, and uh, it's about the lunar rover. Subtitle is The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings. We'll have more following this. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Every week, Undiscipline brings you conversations about fascinating new scientific research and the people who bring it to life. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum, and I'm excited to be taking the reins as the show's new host. You might recognize my voice from Utah Public Radio's newscasts or my Project Resilience special about people with disabilities. Join me every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on Utah Public Radio to learn about how researchers are working to make sense of the world around us. 
You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're talking with Earl Swift. He's the New York Times bestselling author of Chesapeake Requiem, uh, other books, and the latest is Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings. So Earl Swift, I want to talk uh, before we close, have oh, 10 minutes-ish left in the conversation here. I want to talk about the very poignant last section of the book, which is titled Tire Tracks. You write that, I don't know, for NASA, for uh, for a lot of people, the feeling, even though they knew the space shuttle was coming, right, that's, that's what the next program was going to be. But uh, a lot of people, including Werner von Braun, thought, uh, "Well, we're we're going to be back to the moon, right? That's where we're going to going to go." Um, von Braun uh, even thought we'd we'd have space tugs. Uh, these shuttles would ferry travelers up, uh, and and then we, you and I, you know, regular folks would would get in vehicles and uh, be traveling around the around the moon. Poignant now that, uh, of course, that's never happened, not even close. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, I think that if you speak with the astronauts uh, and speak with others who were involved in Apollo, almost 201, they express surprise and, of course, deep regret that that we haven't been back to the moon. And, and uh, I think from a lot of them, you'll also um, you'll also hear uh, a certain mystification. They, it's inconceivable. Uh, to a great many of them that uh, that we haven't been back, that we dropped dropped the program, that we didn't take advantage of the progress we'd made. You know, now now you can argue we did take advantage. That the knowledge of the program has certainly informed everything that NASA has done since. And uh, you'd be right. I mean, that, that can make that argument pretty effectively. I think, but there is a great deal of wistfulness. I think not only among the professionals who made. Apollo happened, but anyone who who witnessed it for that program for those days and or the fact that we didn't continue it. It was the greatest exploration, the greatest human adventure that we've all had the privilege of watching unfold in real time before our eyes. And uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, when Von Braun was interviewed uh, after Apollo 17, I think he was fully convinced that the successes of those last three missions were so irrefutable that surely, you know, and surely NASA would get the funding to go back. There, it, it, it didn't seem possible that that wouldn't happen. And so he figured that by 1990, uh, there, would be, uh, there would be pressurized, big, hulking rovers making long-distance trips across the moon. That's an idea he never really let go of. Uh, and there would be uh, as you mentioned, space tugs that you would you would fly a small rocket from the Earth's surface into low Earth orbit, where you would meet the space tug. The space tug would be waiting for you, and you would transfer to the space tug, which would then take you to the moon. And this was his way of answering one of the big criticisms of Apollo, which was that most of most of the equipment uh, was used once and discarded at great expense. These were not cheap missions. The, the last few, you know, they racked up $450 million in spending apiece. And you had very little hardware left to show for it at the end of it. I mean, you had a, you had a lot of science conducted, you know, completed. And you had a great 
wealth of, of geological samples from the moon, which we are still learning from to this day. But the rockets that got you there were either you know, in the ocean or they were crushed into the lunar surface. They were just tossed. And that went for the rovers, too. You know, those, those rovers cost, if you take an R&D, just split the, the cost of the program three ways, that cost $13 million apiece. And they were used three times and, and left behind. So by using a space tug system, Von Braun saw a way of, of getting to reusable rockets. And it also traded on another thing that he first proposed in that 1952 Tellier's uh, package of stories, which was uh, something called Earth Orbit Rendezvous. In the early going, Von Braun beat the drum for the idea that you would lift with a bunch of small rockets parts for a huge rocket into low Earth orbit, and you just let it sit up there. You'd park it up there. And then eventually, when you had all the parts orbiting, you would have an, an army of astronauts to assemble a huge rocket or several huge rockets, and you'd use those to fly to the moon and the planets. And uh, that Earth orbit rendezvous idea, he favored that well into the 1960s, uh, eventually came around to what was called uh, lunar orbit rendezvous, which is when you have a, a lunar module that separates from the mothership and, and goes down to the lunar surface. It's what we got, and Apollo actually used. But he, he came back to Earth orbit rendezvous and his vision for what post-Apollo trips to the moon would look like. So he was, he was a guy who got his ideas pretty early in life and edited them as the years went by, but never gave up on, on many of them. There have been plans over the years, right, to, to take another rover up. In fact, you write that there's a company that uh, might get a rover up to, to the lunar south pole in 2023. Well, NASA's doing the rover. Oh, they're doing the, uh, the rover. Uh, okay. Yeah, the company out of Pittsburgh that, uh, that's been contracted by NASA as part of that program will build the lander to, uh, to actually put it down on the surface. And, but the rover is, <laughs> the, the rover is unlike the lunar rover in every respect, and it's very unlike the, the Mars rover. So this is a completely new sort of branch of rover thinking that's going to be unveiled. Right now it's scheduled to be unveiled in, in 2023 when the, this rover called Viper lands near the uh, lunar south pole and goes prospecting for ice. Uh, it's going to go looking for water, frozen water. And if it finds it in sufficient quantities, the thinking is, okay, well, then that makes colonization a lot more practical because water's heavy. It's difficult to transport. And if you're going to have any sort of lengthy presence on the moon, you've got to figure out how to get water there. And so this saves that step. You just mine for the, for the ice and, and live off that. So this is a NASA project then, but um, in terms of, um, you know, not maybe Werner von Braun's idea, but, uh, you know, folks on the moon or traveling to the moon, is is it going to be Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos going to take us? Your guess is as good as mine. You know, it's, uh, NASA's never given up on the idea. I mean, NASA, NASA has uh, contracted studies all through the decades since Apollo 17 came home. It's kept alive the assumption that uh, that it's going back, and uh, you know some of the uh, many of these ideas have traded on the, uh, the notion that travel, transportation will be necessary on the surface. You know, the, the several generations of of new rover thinking have come and gone. Uh, 
in the in the fifty years now since uh, Apollo fifteen. So it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how and when we go back, um, and it might well be a, a, a private operation. For all we know, it may not be an American operation. I mean, don't look now, but a lot of people are in the in the space game all of a sudden, and um, you know, um, there's great interest in the moon worldwide. So it's it'll be interesting. In the meantime, as we approach the end of the conversation here, those lunar rovers that you write about, they're still up there, right? They are parked right where they were left, still aimed at the uh, lunar module so they could film it you know, uh, on TV as it took off. And, you know, you can you can go check for yourself. I, I can't imagine too many of your listeners, Tom, doubt that we landed on the moon, but there are those people walking around among us still, and, and all you need to do is go to... Uh, the websites of uh, Arizona State University's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter Camera, our LROC. Uh, it's uh, it's a satellite that's been spinning around the moon uh, for a dozen years or so now. And in 2011, its handlers brought it down to a really low orbit, and they flew it over the old Apollo landing sites. And the photographs it took are jaw-dropping, and they're in shocking detail. You can see, uh, you know, the lunar module descent stage sitting in each of these these base camps. You can see um, the array of scientific experiment equipment that the astronauts left behind to monitor the, the moon, you know, long after they left. And you can see at three of these sites the rovers parked there. And not only that, but you can see their tracks, hundred, you know, zigzagging all over the place, heading out away from base camp. And you can follow these tracks on these photographs for miles. And it's fascinating and, and a little terrifying to see because you get a good, a good notion of just how barren and forbidding that place is when you look at these tracks and see where they drove. And uh, it just, uh, it filled me with a renewed wonder at these guys who, who did this. Because, you know, I've owned a couple of 1969 GM products, uh, and both Oldsmobiles, and um, I'm not sure uh, that as much as I loved both cars, and I did, I'm not sure that I would have climbed into either of them and driven, you know, into the lunar wastes beyond my beyond sight of my one way back um, <laughs> and, and trusted them to, to return me. Uh, Anyway, I, I would urge your, your listeners to, to check out, uh, and, and I can give you the, uh, the URL. It's lroc.sese.asu.edu. Very good. Yeah, yeah. definitely check that out. Uh, finally, Earl Swift, what, what's, the, what's the legacy of Apollo 15, 16, 17, and, and the lunar rover, you think, the, the, top, you know, the top bullet points there? The top bullet point is that it was a tool that enabled the astronauts to fulfill all of the promise of a three-day visit to the moon. I mean, to a degree that I think even the inventors of the rover did not foresee. It it, it performs so much better than anyone expected, and it enabled the astronauts to conduct science and exploration uh, to a degree that I think was unimagined before Apollo 15. You know, it, it was a very different lunar program with the rover aboard. It became a swashbuckling expedition in terms of 
exploration. You know, I mean, you could argue that these guys are on a par with Captain Cook in turn, you know, the annals of exploration. They pushed the edge of the edge of the edge. They flew to the moon, a quarter million miles to the moon, and then they got into a car, and they drove. It's, uh, it's a bit nuts. <laughs> well, the author is Earl Swift. We've been talking with him in this part of this uh, program, Access Utah, and uh, the latest book is Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings. Earl Swift, uh, thank you so much. Tom, thank you. Pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Scott Leo T here. Look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. As we look up in the orange fire-tinged sunset and dusk, there are always treats to discover. Even in the smoke and haze, you can see the moon growing from a crescent to a half and rising higher to the left every night. A couple of nights ago, we were lucky enough on the 11th to look out and see the crescent moon hanging low with Venus just to the right, like a Turkish flag, very surreal. And then later in the dark, Mars, half of a degree from it like cosmic cue balls. And as the sky evolves to dark, wheel around to the south and slightly east for Scorpio. Yes, I've been mentioning that. Uh, there are other treasures to uncover, though, in the tail of the Scorpion above the horizon. Follow the curve from the pulsing big orange Antares toward the horizon. Look for two bright stars close together in the tail. These are known as the cat's eyes. Both are blue-white supergiants. Also to the left of the eyes are beautiful, sublime, open clusters with the binoculars. In popular news, you probably heard this, Richard Branson reached space on a test flight for Virgin Galactic before gliding back to Earth and touching down on Sunday. Richard Branson and his staff have been designing, engineering, and testing for decades using an evolving space plane that uses the very solid idea of getting into orbit from a space jet. He has been promoting space tourism as well since the 80s. His goal is to get to space, and now he has as a passenger on a craft in a suborbital lob. Congratulations, Virgin Galactic. And this thought for your consideration, though, let's keep an eye on these ventures and others such as SpaceX and others launching hundreds of satellites that add to space junk and make it dangerous to navigate in low Earth orbit, or even at times to do deep space telescope work. Taking the Skywatcher spaceship a little further out, NASA's Mars Perseverance rover has been roving around in the Al Jazeera crater, exploring a bit with its companion helicopter taking shots from above. And next week, NASA launches a deep space probe to an asteroid. And in deep space exploration from our home planet, a South African telescope has captured a stunning image of a radio galaxy. Cosmic threads, ribbons, and rings caused by powerful radio emissions from matter falling into a giant black hole at the center of an elliptical galaxy. It's a stunning view of the South African Meerkat telescope data shows as red and orange in the composite view. This is listed on the Skywatcher Leo T Facebook page with other resources for this program. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's one sky, many cultures. This is from Anthony Avini's Star Stories book. Crossing the Mediterranean Sea in ancient times was fraught with danger. Reports of extraordinary shipwrecks left coastal dwellers imagining its waters crawling with all manner of hideous creatures, such as the multi-headed winged serpent Leviathan of Hebrew writings and Scylla who patrolled between the Italian peninsula and the island of Sicily. In this myth, a beautiful maiden is transformed into a four-eyed, twelve-tentacled, six-headed shark-toothed beast. The beast sank ships and devoured their crews. Such stories give the people of African nations quite a fright and a little reason to be terrified. They were aware of Cetus, a gigantic sea monster with the head of a whale, razor-sharp teeth, and the coiled tail of a serpent. Cetus, after being sent to devour Princess Andromeda, was 
sent her to reside peacefully in the southern skies amongst other water constellations like Pisces the fish, Eridanus the river, and Aquarius the water bearer. And speaking of water, it's time for us all to do a little bit of a rain dance, isn't it? Let's get that rain coming down. Bring it on. Bring it down. Enjoy the magic. Look up, look around, and get a little lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR, a translator station statewide and streaming live at upr.org. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, and this week, we spend an hour with Padma Lakshmi. On Top Chef, she sends contestants home every week, but on her new show, Taste the Nation, she goes across the country to learn the human stories behind the foods we all love. It's coming up on The Splendid Table. Sunday at noon, here on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSK Vernal, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSL Richfield, KUSR Logan, and KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org or on the UPR app. It's Golden Oldies, black and white classics of the 1950s, 60s, and beyond. We talked to Dion from the Bronx, now an octogenarian who was a teen idol. He sang love songs, doo-wop, and then blues-inflected rock and roll. Join me for American Roots from PRX. Tune in Saturday evening at 8 here on Utah Public Radio.